Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Artificial intelligence, it's the type of software that's finding its way into nearly every domain. But AI also depends on specialized semiconductor circuits. My next guest warns these chips and the systems that use them also need protection from theft and misuse. Oni Arna is a consultant at the Center for a New American Security, and he joins me now from Finland. Mr. Arna, good to have you with us. Great to be here. And what is the issue? These are graphics types of chips that go into you know, specialized computers for AI. Tell us the dynamic here in terms of hardware and software, because my question is, doesn't a lot of AI just run on standard systems that everyone was already running applications on? So it is possible to run some limited AI systems on uh, even your phone. For example, if you have Face ID, uh, then that relies on facial recognition that is running on your iPhone. But these more powerful systems, such as ChatGPT, are trained and operated in these huge cloud data centers that have tens of thousands of very expensive, very specialized chips. Those are the chips that our report is mostly about. So when I do, say, a Google search and it gives me one of its generated AI types of things, it's displaying on my computer. The calculation is done on a Google facility somewhere that probably has this specialized computing. Yes, exactly. And you read, you know, a lot that NVIDIA is the largest producer of these types of chips, but are there others? There are definitely other producers. For example, Google designs and makes their own AI specialized chips. AMD is another major chip designer that makes GPUs, but especially for uh, large-scale AI applications, NVIDIA has most of the total market share. And just maybe for a minute before we get into the security aspect, just briefly describe what is the market dynamic. Say I'm, I don't know, I'll make up an agency, Homeland Security, and I have an AI application that I need to run in fairly good scale. Do organizations such as that tend to buy their own hardware to run this, or do they just simply sign up for a cloud that already has it? Often, even quite large organizations do sign up for these very large cloud providers because they are specialized, they already have the existing facilities and know how to run them well. But it does sometimes happen that very large organizations can build their own data centers and own clusters. All right. So what is the security question you've raised in a pretty detailed article that these chips could fall into the wrong hands or the subsystems could fall into the wrong hands and therefore what could happen? Yes, exactly. So these chips have become strategically quite important because AI technology itself has become quite important in the general competition between the US and China. And so for that reason, the United States placed export controls on some of the most powerful GPUs in October of 2022. And now what this article is centrally about is ways of trying to make those export controls more targeted and more enforceable by having the chips essentially help enforce the controls. So there is some functionality that could be put on the chip such that if it was misused or installed somewhere put on a circuit board, it wouldn't function? Yes, for example, the chip could potentially contact specific known servers, computers essentially, to test whether it can reach the right computers quickly enough and therefore demonstrate roughly where in the world that chip is. And so, for example, suppose that the chip was sold in Korea, if it can very quickly contact 
a trusted computer in Korea, then we can be quite confident that it is not in China. And this could be very useful for enforcing these export controls. And how amenable do you think the chip manufacturers are to putting on this functionality? The chip manufacturers have expressed some concerns that it can take some time to implement these features as they don't already exist on the chips. And there are some concerns that some users would not want to buy these chips. But in this case, you could try to target the chips at those who would not be able to buy unlimited chips in the first place. And if that self-revelation was built into the chip, then could someone, say, sniffing out chip activity over the wire, say, golly, I know where that data center is now? No, for complicated reasons. Essentially, these mechanisms would rely on complicated cryptographic schemes to ensure that only the people who are actually supposed to receive specific messages can read the messages and get only the information that they were supposed to get and not other information. Right. And export controls, of course, depend on the systems and compliance measures of the people making the chips, and they're not going to fulfill an order they think might be from North Korea or from China, for example. What about chips just being stolen off the loading dock of the fab? You know, when they, there's a whole box of them, and just someone on the loading dock could be bribed into saying, just give me that box or scoop out a handful of them for me. Yes, it's almost inevitable that some handfuls of chips can be smuggled in this way. But again, because these chips are used by the tens of thousands, being able to steal even a single container doesn't necessarily make that large of a difference. And so the more important question is being able to prevent very large scale operations. And getting back to your idea that on-chip governance could be implemented in some manner, is there an architectural solution to make it easier for the chip manufacturers? For example, there are programmable chips, and I'm presuming GPUs don't have that field programmable function to them, but could a chip be added you know, into a substrate next to the GPU chip? And that's where that functionality could be, but essentially for manufacturing, it's one chip. Yes. So... Essentially, these large, complicated GPU chips already have many, many modules on them. And one of the modules that they already have is something called a platform security processor. There is a security module on the chip that is responsible for specific security-related and cryptography-related operations. And this module could likely be expanded and reprogrammed to be able to implement these mechanisms. But this would still require a significant redesign process that would take some time, but nothing that these chip companies are not already used to doing. I mean, these are massively scaled chips, right, with several million transistors, fair to say? I believe it's much further in the billions rather than millions. I'm dating myself. I remember when one transistor had three leads on it, and that's what you put in a circuit board from Heathkit. Well, is there a way that the intended customer could add something or have a key to unlock the chip in some manner such that it becomes your proprietary chip at that point. It could never be reused, but that particular client, say that Google Cloud, could unlock it in some manner. This is something that could potentially be done essentially by, as you said, supplying some kind of cryptographic license to the intended owner. And then if the chip somehow gets redirected on its way to the ultimate intended consumer, it would not work. All right. And what should the government's role be in all of this in encouraging, you know, the NVIDIAs of the world and I guess whoever else makes them, the Taiwan Semiconductor, I don't know who makes them, 
But to get them to get on board with this, is this something that should come through the State Department, through Homeland Security, through the DOD, or what? Yes. In the report, we recommend that the National Institute for Standards and Technology establish a working group to help coordinate standards and define exactly what these mechanisms should do and who should have what kind of control over them. And then agencies such as the Bureau of Industry and Security, which is responsible for export controls, could require chip companies to implement these mechanisms as standardized by NIST on chips that are then exported to, uh, for example, risky countries from where they might get smuggled onward to China. And is your sense from this, from the standpoint of the Center for a New American Security, that NIST and State Department and the other mechanisms get this, that this is something they recognize? So the Bureau of Industry and Security recently asked for proposals for technical measures for making export controls more targeted when they updated the export controls in last October. So they are aware of these ideas, but this is still a very novel idea, which we wrote this whole report about it. All right. So the policy is the easy part to establish, but getting those chips reoriented to this trusted execution type of idea, that's going to take some time. Yes. In general, the design process for these cutting-edge GPUs takes several years. And so even if NVIDIA started on this now, at least they tell me that it would take several years for them to implement this, which is, of course, a different question of how quickly they could really do it if they really had to. Oni Arna is a consultant for the Institute of AI Policy and Strategy, his paper published by the Center for a New American Security. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Great to be with you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.